Welcome to the Speckled Bees, a celebration of childhood. My name is Lucy. I'm Spencer. We are the podcast that talks about child development and other things. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Well said, Lucy. (laughs) Dang it, I'm already tired. (laughs) What can I say? As your levels of tiredness go down, I go up. Because that's how we balance each other out. And oh, so I'm not drinking peppermint tea tonight. I appear to have some kind of green tea. So the caffeine is Oh. So on a related note, we have a buy me a coffee. So if you like what we do and you'd like to help support us, help fuel our research and our production of this podcast, then feel free to go on that. I put snack on there. Uh, buy me a snack for ours because I don't drink coffee. I'm a little caffeine fiend. So (laughs) So buy Spencer lots and lots of coffee and buy me (laughs) some sparkling water and we'll be set to go. (laughs) So I'm really excited about this topic. We are people who are passionate about childhood education. We're maybe equally as passionate about the magical season that is about to come up with Halloween. We're going to talk even a little bit about Christmas in this. So we're going to talk today about magic monsters and make-believe. I love these topics. Oh my God. It's such a part of childhood. And I think we all have memories, even if you don't celebrate these like traditional holidays that we have in the United States. We do have a few international listeners on here, don't we? Yeah, we do. Lots of different places don't have Halloween or they do it differently. People definitely don't have Thanksgiving in other countries and Christmas. Not everybody celebrates Christmas, but I think most cultures have some sort of tradition in the next couple of months to be celebrating and have these memories and have kind of these magical holidays, fantasy holidays. I like to call them the enthusiasm holidays because one of the traits that I look for in friends, especially in my life partner, is people who are enthused. And I love holidays like this. And I feel like that's the overwhelming quality that we share by loving you know, Christmas and New Year's and 4th of July. It's the ones that you can really engage yourself in on multiple levels, whether it's food or it's festivities, parties. It's so fun. The clothing even, like especially with the Halloween, oh my gosh, the costumes. Mm-hmm. So yeah, enthusiasm holidays. Ugh. I like that. That's so fun. Yeah, not just like we just get a day off work, but like yeah. let's really get into this, guys. But yeah, so fantasy is a normal and healthy part of child development. Essentially, this age range that we're going to talk about today is around two to around eight is when really this magical thinking happens. So they're going to be interested in costumes, interested in their superheroes. They're going to believe in the tooth fairy and Santa Claus in Elf on the Shelf. Was it my generation? Did I tell you about a conversation I had with the school agers around Christmas time? And they were talking about Elf on the Shelf. And I was like, listen, the United States didn't have elves, like Elf on the Shelf elves when I was a child. They moved here later on and the children were like, they were so like sad for me that we didn't have Elfa. Yeah. I'm, I'm not sad about it. I I, I don't know that that's going to be one. (laughs) I especially love the parents out there that take the elf from the shelf and set them up in the cutest ways every day leading Mm -hmm. up. I love that. However, the tangibility of the elf really scares me. 
I grew up with a an elf advent calendar. So I always had the elf concept, but it was very different. Every day the elf would leave a present, like a piece of chocolate mm. at the bottom of the advent calendar. That was our elf. Cool. So it was like my parents would be like, yeah, like better be good because the elf might not bring you, you know, like a pair of socks and we'd be like, oh no, like please elf. So it, it kept <laughs> please, us in mind. <laughs> like Tiffany <laughs> Mace says. <laughs> so I just find it interesting that that concept has become a physical thing now. So yeah, Elf on the Shelf. Like it, don't like it, let us know. <laughs> yeah, that's going to be our hot issue. Talking about, you know, the hard issues on this podcast. Last week was like child safety and this week is Elf on the Shelf. <laughs> Look at us really just diving into the problems of together, Lucy, we will solve the strifes of American society. This is going to be... Yeah, this is going to be our great. final goal. Mm-hmm. Yes. <laughs> Meaning of life. Speaking of political uh, discussions, this is something that has come up. I know there's people who don't like this idea of Santa Claus or Elf on the Shelf and things like that because it feels like you're lying to children. And so that is something I really want to talk about. We'll talk about this throughout, but why it is appropriate and why that is okay. And I think you know, within reason of everything. I I do understand, especially if you were a child who was lied to in a real way. And we all go through that too anyways of realizing that things that we thought as children weren't the truth. And that can sometimes be very unsettling. But this is not one of those cases because it is so developmentally appropriate and is how their brain works and processes And it's beneficial to support magical thinking. And this is kind of a harsh way to put it. I I put that it's a waste of time to try to fight it or logic it away. And that maybe is a little bit too harsh. I don't think it's hurtful to try to introduce logical thinking while they're younger, but their brain literally works this way and not the way that the adult brain processes logic. So you can introduce it, but it's probably not going to change much. There's actually somebody on, on Instagram that I follow and I generally agree with most of her stuff. She posts a lot of really wonderful, helpful things, but very recently she talked about how you communicate to children about monsters, like monsters under the bed. She mentioned not really acknowledging it Hmm. when they say that there's a monster, essentially not really support the sinking. And I think there's merit in not going overboard and not really making a huge deal out of things. Like I like if your family does not celebrate Santa Claus, that's also fine. Like it's not going to hurt your child to not have that particular tradition in your house. It's totally fine. And it's fine. If monsters never came up, they would if you never talked about monsters with your child, so it would still come right. up and it's powerful for them to have a word to talk yeah, about. It's not hurting anybody. That's exactly that point that you made. Yeah. You can go in and tell them that there are no monsters, but that is where, and we're going to talk about some of the reasons why, but developmentally, they're not going to 
be able to process that. That's not going to be helpful for them. I think that it actually would be way more helpful. I've seen some people who have like monster spray, like a water bottle full of like monster repellent Mm. playing into it. I've seen that. Yeah. So cute. Yeah. And like, and I could see you not wanting to play it up so much and that's fine if you don't want to do it, but that actually would be way more helpful to play into their magical thinking instead of trying to fight it. So let's get into this. And this is really dorky. So hopefully people can (laughs) uh, stick with me on this. I think in order to understand all this, we have to get into the development a little bit. So there's a lot of different developmental theorists that talk about different stages of development. You even have like Freud. Everybody knows Freud. He's not my favorite, but this field is very grateful to him because he's kind of one of the first people that proposed that there's different stages of development, that children focus on different things at different times, and they're not just adults and think like adults from the very beginning. And you also have Erickson. And later on, we have people who introduce more talking about the different factors that play in environmental factors, socioeconomic factors cultural factors that play into it. That's why you're not going to see all children when they hit two, they're going to develop this. And when they hit eight, they're going to be done with it. That's why you're not going to have these to be all set because every single child is different and their exact formula is exact specific to them of how the world and different factors play in. That's very complicated to go through all of that. And so I promise we're not going to go through all of those theorists. First off, love your enthusiasm. And second off, it's no, because that really is what carries it. Listen, listen, I love the enthusiasm you bring to this. But secondly, I mean, it's important to hear this. We all understand developmental stages. We, we are all learning through life how we fit into some of these stages as life goes on. Like you'll pigeonhole themselves a lot as they get older too. And like, like I'm in that stage of my life. I'm in that. Anyways, but then no, no, I think this mm-hmm. is a good point because you're really taking the logic to the illogical, to the fantastical. I'm sitting here with my tea in hand, like just raptured. <laughs> I was dying while I was preparing this because I was just so it's exciting. Excited. It's really like <laughs> this is a cool point. Essentially, I'm giving you my college education for free. So that's why Give you should listen to, to this podcast. <laughs> Us. <laughs> So we are going to talk mostly today about Piaget, Jean Piaget. If he's not my favorite, he's definitely one of my favorite developmental theorists. He broke down these stages in a little bit more, you know, Freud and Erickson. It's kind of like what messes you up. And that's what's going to affect you as an adult is how you're messed up as a child when you're messed up. Very Freudian. (laughs) Very, very Freudian. Whereas Piaget, it's a little bit more of just like this understanding that children do think differently and that that is a wonderful thing and supporting them through these different stages of a development and letting them be in that stage instead of trying to force them into a different stage is helpful for them. It's beneficial. They need to be going through these stages. And it's really helpful as a caregiver to look at these and understand these different stages so that you don't experience so much frustration of trying to force something before it is relevant to have a logical argument with a three-year-old is going to be very frustrating. It's one of my favorite things to bring up with parents with frustrating three-natures is all Mm -hmm. they want to do is argue because suddenly this point in their brain is snapped on that said, oh, 
I can make an argument to this point. It's it's no longer I want to win an argument. It's I can make an argument. And it's so interesting to see them go through it. Because terrible twos is where can I reinforce my control? And three majors is mm-hmm. I can figure out how to win this. And watching that snap in their brains is something amazing in of itself. Frustrating, but amazing. Yeah, definitely both. <laughs> but yeah, so empowering to understand that, that it's not you and you don't hate your child. It's the way that their brain is working and that it's supposed to be working in this way. They're not being sassy and disrespectful. Their brain is supposed to go through these different stages so that they can develop into a full functioning adult. So in this stage, pre-operational stage of cognitive development, again, this is Piaget. They've done a lot of experiments and Piaget kind of got some of his ages a little bit wrong, but from about two to seven, you see that pre-operational stage of cognitive development. And a lot of different things are going to go on and they're going to be at different stages and be understanding things very differently in this age span. This is a huge, huge age span. If you've worked with children, you understand that two and seven massively, but they're all still somewhere on this spectrum, on the scale of magical thinking. And there's a couple of reasons why at this point, they're developing these schemas and their understanding of the world. And because of the way that their brain is and how they understand things, they are often misunderstanding things. And it's it's a way of logic. It's kind of a form of logic. It's just a little bit, I don't want to say wrong. It's just a little bit mistaken. Right. Some of the things that they come up because of the way that their brain is working. So some of the traits that contribute to these mistakes in logic is centration. So centration is the tendency to focus on only one aspect of a situation at a time. You definitely see this with children where they're hyper-focused on one thing and they miss the rest of the picture. You see this with children being really concerned about how many. So one kid will have one big piece of cake and the other child will have two small pieces of cake. And the first child will be really, really upset because they only have one and the other person had two. And as adult, you look at this and you're like, no, (laughs) what? (laughs) you have more, but they don't understand that yet. This contributes to them having a very poor understanding of the law of conservation. If you have a big squat container of water and you pour it into a tall, skinny container, they're going to think that the liquid grew and they're going to think it's like a magic trick. Then you have irreversibility. They can't backtrack. So you poured this short container, short fat container into the tall, skinny container. That's why they can't logic it back because they can't go backwards in that way. Right, right. That's why at this stage, and this is another one that it feels like you're like lying and tricking your child, but where it's it's fine to do, I guess maybe I might get in trouble for saying it's fine to trick your child. I don't know, but (laughs) I hear what you're saying, right? Yeah. Like if you bring your child a sandwich with a tomato on it, tomato even leaves juices. So maybe let's go with like lettuce. The sandwich had lettuce on it and they didn't want lettuce and they throw a fit. So you just take the lettuce off of their sandwich and they still won't eat that sandwich because it had lettuce on it. They can't understand that it became something new and different. So the way to handle that situation 
is to take that sandwich back into the kitchen, take the lettuce off and then present the sandwich as if it's a new sandwich. Right. Then you have egocentricism, the child's inability to see a situation from another person's point of view. The child assumes that everybody is feeling and thinking that everyone is experiencing the same thing that they are experiencing. That's why you have children who hit other children. And to them, nothing is wrong because they're not hurt. This reminds me of the experiment you and I shared. It wasn't talking about egocentricism, but it was talking about empathy and the age which develops. And so Lucy and I were watching this video of these children. It it was, it was emphasizing, do you understand your effect on yourself as your effect on others? And these children were trying to push a shopping cart, but what they did not understand was the shopping cart was attached to a rug they were standing on. So because of the weight of them on the rug, whenever they pushed the shopping cart, the cart obviously would not move because their own weight as it was this very interesting shift as they hit a certain age point where they understood to get off the rug because they were causing their own consequences. It was, it was just such an interesting flip in that understanding. Mm -hmm. I love studies. The, The study that Piaget did to determine this is he had a board of like a city, I think it was a model of it. And there was like a doll on one side of the board and the child sitting on a different side. And they had the child pick which image matched what the doll was seeing. And they would pick their viewpoint of it up until a certain point until they had kind of developed past. And this experiment, they've done different versions of it later on and realized that Piaget kind of did get this wrong with the age ranges because the experiment was not great. The children didn't understand exactly how it was worded, but this viewpoint, what's happening to them. Yeah. And their effect on others, the empathy. That's what exactly what I was thinking. We talked about this. um, We've talked about empathy a lot. Yeah. And how they don't have empathy yet. They don't develop it until later on. And so why it's good to start talking about that and having those conversations and doing what whatever you can to help instill empathy, they're not going to have it yet. But also I just wanted to, because egocentricism, this sounds like such a bad thing, but even you see this with a child choosing presents and they'll give their mom this stuffed animal that they love. And the mom doesn't care at all about this stuffed animal. Like that's not what she would choose. That's not what she wants as a present. She wants like alone time and massage. (laughs) Tell him. (laughs) But the child and they're thinking this would be the best present that they could think of because that's what they really want. And so it's not this selfishness. It's just the way that their mind is working right now. And sometimes it is very, very sweet. We had an art project once called, Do You Feel What I Feel? I found it online in a bit of an older age group, but I used it as an artistic representation with four to five on how empathy transfers and how it works. And we had the children pair up and the children would tape a piece of paper to their friend's back and have to draw a picture on their friend's back. And of course, nobody could ever get it because they were very young. And it's also back to the power of the black line episode, you're at the scribbling stage still at that age. You're only just starting to develop like actual conceptualized ideas. <laughs> so they would draw on it and they would get so frustrated 
when the person getting drawn did not understand what they were drawing. I still very distinctly remember this one kid <laughs> yelling, it's a car, it's a car, I'm drawing a car on you. And it was like, well, he, he, you, you need to work with him. You need to explain it. Maybe actually walk him through what you're drawing and which parts it is. And it was just interesting because it was this really like nice direct correlation of showing that it's so hard to think that what we see is what everybody else sees. But in fact, we might need to explain it or really just expect people do not understand what we are doing and, and seeing. So it was, it was a fun little tournament. So, yeah, that's funny. Also, like, totally understand why they would have gotten really frustrated with that because they don't understand that yet. Of course, everybody <laughs> wanted the teacher to be their partner because the teacher understood what they were trying. So, right, right, right. That's so funny. That is really funny. Oh, there's also more in this stage of different traits and different things that are going on. I just kind of chose out the ones that I felt like really contribute to their magical thinking during this time. So transductive reasoning is when a child fails to understand the true relationship between cause and effect. So again, this is a very much kind of like logical, they're starting to get the concept of logic. It's just misinformed. So they will pair two specific events together that don't have anything to do with each other. So like the example that I found also a lot of this, I took from a lot of different sites. So I'm going to link my references in this, but for example, if a child hears a dog bark and then a balloon pop, the child would conclude that because the dog barked, the balloon popped. This is often why you see, especially children in this particular age, I mean, I think older ages too still struggle with this because this is such a hard, serious one, but parents getting divorced and the children really think that it was their fault. It was something that they did. (sighs) They didn't listen that day that they found out they're making these conclusions based on the evidence and the understanding that they have. And that's not true. (laughs) That's not true. Then you have animism. This is very obvious how this relates to magical thinking. We all saw Toy Story, you know? Uh, (laughs) So this one needs very little explanation, but just in case, it's a belief that inanimate objects have human feelings and emotions. Piaget actually identified four stages. So up to the ages of four or five, a child believes that almost everything is alive and has a purpose. I I saw a little picture the other day of a little girl. She looked like she was like probably about three. And right after she had watched Toy Story, it's a picture of her like peeking in her room. And it said like, every time that girl left her room, she'd say, I'm leaving. And then like quickly peek back into her room to see if her animals were, <laughs> were walking around. That is super around. cute. Uh, I love that. And Toy Story is why millennials have hoarding issues because we don't want to throw any of our toys away. Yeah, because we don't want to hurt them forever. <laughs> then the last one that I had from Piaget on this list is artificialism, is the belief that certain aspects of the environment are manufactured by people, which makes sense because, again, they're working with what they understand and this egocentricism of them causing things. And so that somebody painted the clouds in the sky, somebody made the clouds up there, or that somebody must be blowing really hard and that's where the wind is coming from. But yeah, so like this idea that the children have more control, this also makes sense why 
they would believe that if they have good behavior, Santa Claus is going to come or not. Like they're going to believe a lot of these things anyways. So it's not harmful. Maybe focus more on just like, we need to do good things and try to move them into doing good, not so much for the consequences of what you get, but they're not going to understand that yet because they are in this stage. So it's okay that they are thinking that way. So then the last one I put on this list is not strictly from Piaget, but seeing is believing in this stage. So you have a child that sees a piece of soap go down the bathroom drain and they really think that they're going to be able to go down the bathroom drain. Yeah. And a lot of fear, like with a monster, you could turn the light on and be like, look, this isn't a monster. This is a coat hanger. And they'd be like, but I saw a monster with my own two eyes. So coming in at a logical, like logically, you cannot go down the drain. Oh, this is what we were, we were talking about this the other day, that a girl on the internet, that, that kind of this question was going around of what did you believe, like really truly believe when you were younger, that was ridiculous, but you really believed it. And she believed that birds grew out of bird seed. And her parents were like kind of trying to argue with her. And they were like, no, see, look, let's go plant this bird seed and see what happens. And so she went and like planted the bird seed. And then the next day there were birds all over that area. And she That's was like, so see, Aww. they grew from the bird seed. What an innocent little thing too. Yeah. <laughs> right. I love it. I love it. And like, obviously as adults we're like, I mean, it was very obvious what happened there, but seeing is believing. She knew after that point that birds came from bird seed. Did you ever have a fantastical moment when you were a kid? Like one of those, oh my gosh, I can't believe that happened. That's a good question. Do you have one? I have one. I always think about, I love telling other kids this because they eat it up. It's regarding Santa Claus. So there's so many Santa Claus movies. I would love a shout out to us 90s kids who watched the movie The Santa Claus with Tim Allen, where he turns into Santa. Do you remember how he fit down the chimney, the magic that occurred with that? And he like... (laughs) Yeah, yeah. He had to like magic himself or the chimney or both. Oh yeah, maybe the chimney grew. What movie am I thinking that it goes like... No, you're right. That's like, there's so many of these movies. Yeah, they all kind of mixed together, but yeah. Is that the Grinch? Maybe. Slide in. So in the movie, he like does magic and the chimney opens up or he gets smaller. Both things occur, whatever it is. And I will never forget. There was a Christmas and I shared it with my sister and she remembers this as well. We were laying in bed, you know, the anticipation, it's the middle of the night and we're awake and we're like, oh my God, like, do you hear anything? No, we lived in the basement floor of a four story apartment building in London, England. And there was no chimney except for an old, like molded up one, you know, where like they put the paint on top of it. We're laying in bed and we see rainbow lights start streaming under the door. And we're like, the chimney is opening. And, you know, we dared not get out and look at it. And we would just see the lights and we heard some bells. And then the next morning, you know, there was stuff by the chimney. And I, I don't know if my parents were just extra amazing that year or what but we both remember rainbow lights streaming through the door just like in the Santa Claus movie and that was so like whimsy oh that's so cute speaking of like environmental factors and other things that came in I was 
number five of six kids. So the point where I knew that Santa Claus didn't exist was uh, really quite early. <laughs> Makes me sad. Oh, <laughs> like I don't know that I ever really did believe that much in Santa Claus. I don't remember. I remember finding out the tooth fairy wasn't real because my parents didn't wait until I was asleep enough and they like had my a conversation. My parents did the same thing. <laughs> yes. I'll never forget the light in my eyes and I was like, hi. And she she looked at me she's like, oh. And that was the end of it. Yeah, like, it was just like, oh, oh bummer, dude. <laughs> Anyone who does celebrate Christmas totally has a story of how they found out about Santa Claus or the tooth fairy, or, you know, you have that moment or some people it is that they just kind of figured it out. One of the articles I was looking at, they had surveyed a bunch of people and found out how they found out that Santa was, wasn't real. And a lot of them was around eight. They just kind of eight figured, sounds about, yeah, I think you figure it out. And I have a big disdain in my heart for people who tell people that Santa isn't real. I think it is very rude and very Baha muggy of you. I don't feel like it's necessary. I think you should just let people do them. I'm also just very whimsical and I, I love whimsy in children. Mm-hmm. And it it really breaks something special in my heart when children lose whimsy for something. Like yeah. that's just a sad day. Mm-hmm. Maybe you used to love dinosaurs and then somebody told you they were silly and now you don't love dinosaurs. Like, yeah. it's, things like that. it's not just Santa. It's- yeah. Being forced to grow up before they are ready. I cannot imagine what it's like to be a kid in this day and age when everything can be looked up at the touch of your fingers. Oh, yeah. Because we did not grow up with this. Be sad. And- I didn't even think about that. That would be so hard. I'm thinking about it because, and this is a subject we could get into later. I'd love to do more research on this. There's a proper term for this age, this dynamic, but how the gap between childhood and maturity has waned. Because you always hear nowadays about how kids back when we were very young and innocent still are very, very mature for their age, if not overtly so. And I would agree with it. It feels like because, you know, it's more access and understanding of the internet by the age of what, nine now? And I feel like the more that kids have access to the internet, not to hark against it, but simply to hark in favor of the fact that, yeah, they're a little more exposed than we were and therefore seem to have lost a lot of that whimsy. Mm-hmm. They're much more cynical and much more understanding and logical of certain certain elements of the world that I feel like maybe they, they don't need to be privy to yet. It's like, hold on to that. Hold on to the, the unknowing, the naiveness of it all. So I loved when you were talking about how like some of this is lost because there are so many benefits to this whimsy to this magical thinking. I have two lists here. One is more of a general list, but I'm actually even going to jump into why it's important to have traditions and holidays. But let's talk about why it's important to play pretend and to dress up and to have imagination. So one, it helps children think through hypotheticals and develop reasoning skills. A lot of dramatic play is experiments to separate reality and fantasy. How does this work? You know, you have the cliche story of a child 
jumping off things, trying to fly and getting hurt. (laughs) But that is them separating reality and fantasy. Superman can fly. That means people can fly. I can fly. And oh, actually, you know what? I think it's not possible for a human to fly. Um, Cross that off my list. So even if you could get a child to understand your logic, that won't help them learn how to do it for themselves in the future. So you can go through this logical thinking. You can go and turn the lights on and show like nothing here, nothing here. Like monsters don't exist because of this, this, and this. Maybe if you really took the time and worked really hard, you could convince a child to get away from a specific magical thinking point, but it's not going to help them do that in the future. They need to believe in everything in order to figure out what is real and what is right. they need to be experimenting on all of these different things. So hopefully that they can be adults who don't just believe a thing that they see written on Facebook, but they can mm. really be doing their own research. What a nice way to bring that full circle. <laughs> yeah. So then my second point is they get to try on different roles. This is really important for when you see dress up. This is so cool for children to be able to do in dramatic play. That is why I have, I have trouble with any school that really doesn't support dramatic play because it's really important. It helps them develop a sense of self, especially like in this age span. And this is how children identify themselves at this point. It is very physically based. It's very obvious. So they need to be able to figure out those concrete things. I am tall. I have brown hair. And they also need to kind of break out of that and try on different roles to figure out who they really are and who they're really comfortable with being. It helps them develop empathy as they are trying on these different roles that maybe they will discover that's not who they are, but they will see how it is to be a different person and be able to put themselves in other people's shoes a lot better. Makes sense. If you're concerned about them developing this empathy, a really good way to do it is have them do dramatic play. Then it helps a lot with memory and recall because they're hearing something and they're acting it out. They're seeing this thing and they're acting it out. Lots of times you'll even see children reenact whole movies you know, frozen. Oh, been there. <laughs> yep. So you're going to see children play things that they see, uh, That, which brings me to my next point. This is really good for control and independence and processing. You see this with situations that children don't have control. They're often going to play those games. So ones that I've seen very explicitly, war. War is one that it kind of concerns teachers when they see children doing like gunplay and war. Right, right. And it, it does get into a very gray area. But my professor told this story one time that was so, so powerful. Actually, she has two really awesome gun stories, but I'll just tell one uh, is that she was working with a group of children. I think it was a Head Start program that a lot of the parents were military and were deployed at the time and they were playing Mm -hmm. war. And uh, the problem with 
shooting games when children are doing that in dramatic play is that it's not very productive because it has an endpoint. So it doesn't keep evolving. That's a good way of putting it. I'm going to use that mindset next time that I'm telling a child to please stop. Yeah. So a good way to handle it is some redirection. You don't necessarily have to say, we're going to stop. We're not going to do this anymore. Being a nature teacher, every stick that is picked up by a little boy is very likely going to become a gun. Uh, (laughs) And so a way to make it productive play is I ask, what are you shooting? I'm shooting bubbles out of my gun. Nice. You can't shoot bullets out of this gun. So what, what is coming out of your gun? And honestly, one prompt of something cool that's coming out of your gun, they're going to come up with like, they're shooting spider webs at people. And it makes it this creative play that continues and evolves. But yeah, so um, my professor was telling us the story of th- that they would play war and she was not very comfortable. So she was trying to redirect it. So she talked about like, oh, so why do soldiers use guns? Because they're protecting. So we have to find something to protect. And they like build a fort. Ah. And what else do they use? And so they use boxes to build a tank. And so she was able to keep this play really productive. And this is a play they needed because it was something very real that was affecting their lives at the time. And they needed to be processing it. This is how children understand the world is through play. That's the tools that they have to understand things. And so... One thing that I'm sure you saw this a lot at the beginning of the pandemic, particularly the older ones, I saw them playing that there was a sickness, there was some sort of disease, playing a lot of doctor and makes sense because this is a situation that they don't feel like they have any control over. I mean, as adults, this has been a really hard time because we have no control over what's going on. It's a good thing that the children are are playing these situations because they're going to process it much more quickly and help in a much healthier way. So going back to children using it to gain control and to feel like they have power, that is one of the reasons why children are really into superheroes. They like that idea that they have a lot of power, especially in this world where they don't have a lot, you know, children have, right. none of us have any power over anything. That's the most pe- that's pessimistic thing I've said in my life. And that's the end of this podcast. Yeah, the end. But yeah, um, but especially children, you know, they don't get to control when they go to bed. They don't get to control what they eat. They have very little control over their lives and they're trying to exert power. I, I like this quote. While we don't want children to engage in power play exclusively, it is important to recognize that acting out some of these magical powers is natural and essentially harmless. So I did like that. It kind of going back to the gunplay that you don't want a child to ever be doing that exclusively. And you want to make sure that it is productive play. You know, you see this with movies where the superhero starts out with too great a power and fights the most powerful one, and there's nowhere to go from there. So you don't want a child playing that all the time where they can win no matter what. Can I just make a really quick nerd comment? Uh Uh-huh. For anybody here who watches anime, there is a very popular anime that is taking a lot of culture by storm right now called One Punch Man. (gasps) I love One Punch Man! And the whole idea is that- I don't even really like anime. It's so funny. He's so bored. Uh-huh. The poor character is so bored yeah. because if, as the name implies, he punches one time and he beats the bad guy. And so he is so 
bored because that is the ending to any of his stories. Yeah. Such a funny show, but yeah, essentially that if children are playing that they're going to get bored and they're not going to be practicing all of these other skills. So the number four helps children work collaboratively and helps them practice self-control in order to have really good productive play. They're going to have to, you play this role and I play this role and we're working together. We have to be flexible. I don't want you to do that thing, but you want to do that thing. So, okay, right. we can, we can kind of work together, help them the, develop the self-control. Highly important. Yeah. Then number five is language skills. This is also one of the reasons why it's really important to read to your children because you're going to use different Mm -hmm. cadences, different vocabulary, but this is a way for children to really practice that. I heard a child fake playing on the phone and they were like, don't do that work harder. (laughs) And I was like, who are you talking to? And she's like, nobody. (laughs) Like gave me a whole attitude. Number six is motor skills. We just did a giveaway talking about all of the different skills that it takes to get dressed. There's so many very impressive fine motor skills that go into getting dressed and gross motor skills to coordinate your body goes all into body awareness and proprioception, understanding how your body parts relate to one another. Then number seven, creative thinking. They're practicing this creative thinking and as they grow, that imagination and creativity is going to translate into art and music and creative writing and help with critical thinking. This is like what makes us special as human beings is our ability to think creatively, to create it, to better the world around us. Then I have a a shorter little list, just all of that, but specifically with traditions and holidays, we need those. Those are important for us to have these traditions and holidays. So it helps you strengthen family ties and establish stability and consistency and routine, which that is vital. That is like the biggest thing that you can do. They thrive on routine. They need stability. They need to know that things are going to be consistent. Gosh, that could not be expressed more. Sorry, I I just, everything is well said. Oh, good. I'm so sorry. Thanks for validating me. I love this conversation. It's, It's really hard to keep my mouth shut. Every point is so valid. Like, uh, Mm -hmm. Number two is it helps create memories and help develop a sense of self. Talking about this as adults, that's why we love these holidays. It's because so much of our young experiences with these holidays really contributed to who we are. Yeah, how we are as adults. It really matters to us. We still care how we found out about Santa Claus. We still care about our parents following some traditions. We still care about getting our pajamas on Christmas Eve. We still care about watching the right movie, you know, having a significant other. It's always funny to kind of see what compromise, how are we going to celebrate this holiday? How are we going to develop our own traditions? It's such a sense of self from a young child to an adult. How do I celebrate this holiday now? That's who I am. That's a good one. Yeah. Oh man. And as you who has like 12 Halloween costumes each Halloween, like this is such a part of your identity, who you are, that you celebrate and have these traditions. Back to the very first point we made at the beginning of this conversation. Enthusiasm is to me the most important thing. I do not care 
if you have a bad attitude about something, I do not care if you do not like something, show me an ounce of enthusiasm for something and I will be obsessed with you. And that is why I love my partner because any occasion in life, it, it, he matches the level of enthusiasm I give it or vice versa. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I do like that point because immediately, as soon as you said that it, the, my little synapses, my connections are made to how I have compromised in holidays it's important. It's important to uh, establish what's important and how we curtail ourselves to other people's levels of importance as well. You know, what do they hold dear? Mm -hmm. Well, and I think that it helps establish an identity as a couple, even as a family. I I think that's important for me that I am not celebrating all of the holidays the exact same way as I did as a child. It's nice to have these other traditions to come into to have it for our child so that we have our own family culture. That is not just my family culture. It's not just John's family culture. It is our family culture. And Leo will grow up and will come up with new, better traditions even, you know, (laughs) and it will be his identity and his new family culture, however he chooses to make a family. So then I just have a quick list of how to encourage imaginative thinking and play, because this is a really important list. That list that I came up with because I'm very smart and intelligent. Uh, (laughs) You preach, girl. Don't let anyone tell you otherwise. (laughs) But that's a really (laughs) thorough list of a lot of benefits. So how do we encourage this in our children? How do we let them be children in this stage and stay in this magical thinking for as long as they can? So the first one I have is just go along with it instead of being like, no, you're not flying. You can be like, wow, you're so high. Not necessarily arguing with everything. I think it's okay to do it every once in a while to be like, no, you're not that. Because, you know, I, we have our limits too. As an educator, pick your battles. Yeah. There, there's just only so much that you can argue before it's it, it's exhausting. Okay. I'm, I'm going to take a bit of a cynical approach to this as well. We choose what we agree with and we choose what we concede because as parents and educators just trying to help our child develop, sometimes it is easier to just agree than it is to explain. Yeah, And I I hate to put it that way, but there are those days where it's just like, you know what? Exactly. You said it, but like literally there is an instance that happened just the other day. It was almost exactly that point. They were like, you know what? They said that trees are red all year long. And I was like, why? Why why do we think this? And they're like, well, obviously. And I was like, fine. Sure. (laughs) Do you? Do you, kiddo? So my nephew, oh my gosh, he's so cute. But at this point, (laughs) I had just started studying child development in college, was working with children, knew a lot, right? I wish people could see your face right now. That was (laughs) so cute. And I went and I spent some time with my nephew. He was two or three at this time. And we were playing trains and I, the educator, go one, two, three counting the trains. And he looks at me and he goes, one, five, seven. And I was like, no. (laughs) Oh, well, let's count together. One, two, three. And he keeps looking at me and keeps saying one, five, seven. And I was like, what is going on? I'm already guessing the ending in my head. I'm excited. Like I'm getting into this debate with him 
in this ridiculous debate, you should never get in an argument with a two-year-old because no, nobody's a winner in that scenario. <laughs> As we discussed earlier, all they want to do is assert right, right, so right. frustrating. Right. And I kind of <laughs> am thinking this is what he's doing. He just doesn't want to be told what to do. And I'm like, no, that I'm teaching Fair. you. I'm teaching you, sir. It's one, two, three. This is how we count. Finally realize that there are numbers on the side of the train. I knew you were going to say that. Stop. And he was like, what are you doing? I know I can see these numbers and I'm identifying these numbers at a very early age. This is one, five and seven. And you are not saying the right numbers. And me like, I know better because I'm the adult. I know what is right. Yeah. So this, that's a a little bit off the topic of what we're saying, but even, yeah, like sometimes it is better to go along with it too, because sometimes they may be right and you may be wrong. Right. And no matter what it is, how they are perceiving the world at this point, and they are right in their perception. So it doesn't really do us any good to argue, to exert our power and our superiority of being adults and knowing so much because we don't, we still have really false schemas, really bad paradigms as adults. We're still getting things wrong. So to have a little bit more respect for children and to support them in their magical thinking, let them stay in the stage for a little longer. It's okay if that they believe that that sound was a reindeer on the roof, right? It's not going to hurt anybody and it's going to just help them stay in that stage a little bit longer. Amen. So choose open-ended toys is another one. Hi, Reggio. Yeah. I love open-ended toys and there, there's a really good time and place for closed ended toys, but I like to keep it very in favor of open-ended toys, especially because if you have toys that serve a specific purpose, you're only going to have one type of game. So boring. Yeah, so boring. If you have a Superman doll, all the games are going to be Superman. One of my favorite things about working in a Reggio setting currently and being the ambiguous art teacher is setting up prompt-based open-ended toys. Usually I'll p- couple a book with it. Mm-hmm. And I'll set up like-minded toys and I'll say, okay, this is called Day at the Beach. Can you set up a day at the beach and how are you going to make your activities? Like, like give, give it a prompt, give it something there. And so that way it's still open-ended, but I'm setting a directional tone. Mm-hmm. And I, I feel like there's a, there's a fun little challenge at it. I love, especially in a classroom setting, to set up multiple open-ended toy tables. Maybe two of them will have prompts and two of them are open-ended. I think it's really, there's completely open-ended. Mm. And I think it's so interesting to see what the kids drive themselves towards. You know, it's like, they, right. do they want the the tweezers and the sticks and they, they want to just work on that skill and see what they can do with it? Or do they want something a little more? Yeah, to have these provocations, you're going to get so much more out of something if you have an open-ended toy. and Closed ended toys really are really good for like assessment purposes and good for them to practice very specific skills that you want them to work on. But again, I think it's better to lean in favor of open ended toys and you're going to have so much more creativity in what is played, even dress up, especially when we're in October talking about Halloween. Definitely have some costumes in there. That's totally fine for them to take on a very specific role, but also to have some options that are more open-ended, have just glasses, have just hats so that they can take on a new role 
but that could be anything with that role instead of just Elsa. It's a good idea to rotate through some of these things to introduce new roles, especially if you're in a childcare setting. Right. It's a nice at home, definitely, to rotate things out, but definitely in a childcare settings to make your dress up be a provocation too, a prompt for them to experience different roles and not just one type of role, like not just not have it just be kitchen. Then schedule downtime, make sure. Children have some free time every day to play on their own. Boredom is a really, really powerful teacher. Right. Think about as a child, the best days of play or when you're like, I'm so bored. And your mom was like, go outside. Right. My mom always said, here's a list of chores. And I was <laughs> like, fine, I'll go play. <laughs> but yeah, like those were the best days where when you were bored. And so you had to create a new game, a new thing that you'd never done before. Limit screen time. This is kind of something we were talking about, about like technology right? and being just intentional with media consumption. Even I know lots of parents love their educational TV shows and they love that their children are learning their alphabet and colors. Right. <laughs> that is all good things, but that's somebody else's make-believe world instead of them creating something from their own imagination. I love that phrase. Don't give them somebody else's make-believe world. Yeah. They need to come up with their own. And it's okay for them to delve in that every once in a while. They learn new things. They Like even while we were talking about books and make-believe with helping language skills and introducing new vocabulary, that also does come from screens, but not just having that the default and not letting ourselves be like, oh, this is doing a better job than I would do, or it's, it's better than if they were bored, let them be bored. Right. The recommendations is that I should have put these on here. I believe that before they're two, it's like no screen time at all. Really? Your baby should not be looking at a screen at all. And uh, Leo definitely saw a screen before he was one. So I don't want to make anyone feel guilty about this, but it really messes with their depth perception because they're not looking at 3D objects for them. It's really not even just like a neutral. It can be really harmful for your child to be looking at screens for a long time after like from two to five, it should be limited to about one hour of quality television per day. Obviously there's a balance of everything. Some days they're going to be on for a lot longer, some days less, but make sure that they're not missing out on really beneficial experiences. And last one, we've talked about this actually quite a bit, but reading to your child helps with this imaginative thinking, helps introduce new subjects and also promotes those language skills. Read to your child immediately, like in the womb. You don't have to wait until they're older and really interested in books. Find stuff that fits their attention span. If it's just one word on a page, it's going to introduce a lot of really good things for them. We talked about that in the episode on getting help for young children. Lauren talked about the importance of reading to children. It's just a really good thing to do. That is where I wanted to just talk a little bit since it is the season of monsters and magic. Yes. Some of my favorite Halloween books. So Go Away Big Green Monster is one of our absolute favorites. That's a year-round book, but... But, but the monster themology 
the little old lady who wasn't afraid of anything. My lead teacher when I was in an outdoor nature preschool, when I was just a student in the program, she read this book and it was the best thing in the world. And I immediately went out and bought it and I have used it every Halloween season since. It's also a really nice one, especially if you're in a school that doesn't really talk about Halloween or if you're a household that doesn't really celebrate Halloween but you just kind of like the season, it introduces a lot of the ideas without being Halloween, you know, right. Has a jack-o'-lantern in it has kind of some spookiness in it, but it's not a Halloween book. Then I put it on Instagram to ask for a couple more. So these are a couple suggestions from other people. We're recording tonight. I should have put this up earlier if I wanted to (laughs) include any more, but if any more come after we record, then I'm, we'll make a Halloween list or something. That's nice. But one was the Halloweener. I've never read that book, but that sounds really hilarious. It sounds really cute. I Mm -hmm. like it. (laughs) Where the Wild Things Are is a really like classic monstery book. Uh, Apparently Spencer has some feelings about this book. I just think it's very scary. Oh, that's fair. That's fair. It's just so whimsical to me. And in kind of like this more like, like, I don't know, I could see, see it especially appealing to little boys. He's a brat and there's some things in it that I don't love, but (laughs) I love the whimsy of the book and the art in the book. I love the art. Somebody else said there's something in my attic, which I'm going to have to look that up. I don't know that one. I'm a little familiar with that one. Oh, yeah. And then I love the teacher from the Black Lagoon. Like the Black Lagoon books were a really fun set of books. So this one, oh my gosh, is actually one of my favorite books of all time. And when I like thought about it, I was like, this is not really Halloween-y at all, but in my head, I associated it with it. I think because one year I went as her for Halloween, but um, A Curious Case of Stripes. Oh, yes, yes. Classic. I love that book. Anyways, just a couple of fun ways to add some whimsy into your classroom or your home this time of year. We'll have to make even a longer list of some of our favorite books. And we'll do that for Thanksgiving and Christmas too. I think that would be fun. I'll add my favorite, which is Room on the Broom. One of my favorites because, okay, first off, great classic art. This is one I read when I was a kid. It's all about a witch who's trying to fit everyone on her broom. So she customizes the broom to get really special. Oh my gosh, the little inventor in me was like, look at all those cool things you can do with the broom. I get nostalgia chills thinking about the pictures in that book. So good. Oh, I like that. on the broom. That sounds so cute. I didn't know that one. She just keeps adding more friends to her broom. And so she just keeps customizing her broom with chairs and drink holders and and little special things. It's super cute. The other one, while you were talking about that, that I was thinking of, we have this book. I don't know who it's by. It was one that was given to me by one of my professors because I was pregnant. And so he like gave me a bunch of children's books that he just had laying around. Who wants a dragon? And it's so cute. It's about this little baby dragon and nobody wants this baby dragon. The person who like was the kindest to this dragon was the witch, but a dragon doesn't really fit on a broom. But then his mommy, his mo- the mommy dragon, Leo is really into mommy's like leaving and coming back right now. And maybe he wants me to leave. I don't know. <laughs> but that is one of our favorite books right now and has a little witch in it. I love witches. 
Yeah. Okay. I just wanted to end with when the magic ends, because obviously at some point the pre-operational stage ends, they figure out about Santa. So I just have some thoughts about this time period when it does end, which is getting a little out of the realm of early childhood and what we talk about. But this end of the magical thinking is really bittersweet, but it is also a sign that their brain is developing as it should prefrontal cortex, the area of the brain just behind the forehead has made the connections it needs to process more high level thinking. So the way a child thought the world worked is not necessarily how it actually does work. And they are becoming way more aware of it. So this is sometimes called like the age of reason when a child is starting to figure out this. But I also wanted to mention, this is when kids begin to form a conscious and develop empathy and differentiate between right and wrong and act not just on impulse, but because something is the right thing to do. So you'll start seeing this as they exit out of this phase. This is kind of this age of a age of accountability, age of reason, age of accountability. Ooh, I like that. Yeah. So this also explains why this time around like second grade where they're starting to master sharing before then sharing really isn't very developmentally appropriate. And it's a very important thing to learn and to be working on. But I know a lot of teachers and parents get really frustrated because their child is not sharing and they're really pushing it. Obviously let's work on it, but you don't have to get so frustrated because that is not developmentally appropriate until later on because it's empathy that you don't right. care about sharing before you develop this empathy. They can consider up right. other people's feelings, but this also explains why like monsters disappear around this age. They don't care about the monster under their bed anymore because they haven't seen it their whole life and they're already eight. So clearly it doesn't exist. You're going to also, I liked this. This, this is from scholastic.com. This is also a time when your fantastical answers to their increasingly complex questions will no longer cut it. Thunder can no longer be a bowling match in the sky and the moon definitely isn't made of cheese. But just because your kids have reached the age of reason doesn't mean they can't imagine a bowling match in the sky or a moon made of cheese. It just means that now they'll be in on the joke. Hmm, love that. And on the joke. Yeah. And they'll still be intrigued by magic and they'll still have imaginations. And <laughs> my little brother still set up like army men and made battles really in, into his teen years. And <laughs> Well, you make jokes, but like, let's think about all of the adults who are really into like Civil War reenactments yes. or really into D&D. Mm -hmm. Collecting. Collect collecting is is very much a yeah. toy-based function. Yeah. Oh, I have a question we should ask throughout the week after this podcast is released. What whimsy did you hold on to? What is your whimsy? <gasps> right? Like, like, like Disney adults? I, I would be really curious to hear those answers. Like, I what, love what is your that. whimsy? Oh, my dad goes to the Warhammer conventions every single year. <laughs> so yeah. Good for him. Yeah. Like, like cause everybody has their thing. Right. Right. Yeah. So like we all hold on to that magic throughout the rest of our lives. It's just the difference between really believing in it and understanding right. that it's not real, but it is sure a lot of fun and it still enhances our lives. But that is, right. that is why it is important for us to still 
support this. We understand that this isn't real. Santa Claus is, oh, well, hopefully this oh. doesn't come as, <laughs> yeah, come as a shock. Uh, maybe I should do spoiler alert. Spoiler alert. Santa Claus is not <laughs> real. Sad truths. <laughs> A lot of these things that we believe as children, monsters, Frankenstein, these things are not real, but it's important for our children to believe in these things and to be playing and to grow their imagination. And like I said, these continue on in our life to enrich our lives, to make us creative in other areas and to let us keep a bit of that whimsy and magic in our everyday lives. Thank you for joining us today. This has been a lot of fun. I know that we were getting a little tired near the end, but hey, that's why we do this. We can talk for hours, and that is why we started this podcast. It's just fun. We just want to talk with you, and we hope you enjoy this podcast. Yeah, thank you so much. And if you are enjoying listening to this, please subscribe. Make sure you're following us so that you know when new episodes come out so that we can talk to you every week and continue to build our community together. Thanks for joining Speckled Bees. We are buzzing out. If you just believe.